Three years after Equifax's landmark breach, IFCSE reflects on their recovery. And how did scans of 54,000 Australian driver's licenses end up being exposed on the internet? These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Anna Delaney. It was September the 7th, 2017, when Equifax announced its breach, which resulted in the theft of personally identifiable information for 145 million Americans. Just six months later, Jamil Farshi took on the role as CISO of the credit reporting firm. As we are approaching the three-year anniversary of the Herculean data breach, in a recent interview with ISMG's VP of Editorial, Tom Field, Farshi opened up about the Equifax breach recovery and three-step transformation program, which has seen Equifax rebound under Farshi's leadership. Here Farshi is on the lessons learned through the Equifax security transformation, which is near completion. Sure, there's, there's a few of them. Um, number one, as we've discussed, I won't, I won't overdo it, but number one is culture. Do not overlook that, hands down. My, my theory is this, you can have the best team in the world. If you have a bad culture, they're not gonna succeed. You can have a mediocre team, but if you have a great culture, they're probably gonna do pretty well. Um, so that's number one. Number two is on the control side. Focus on the fundamentals, the, the fancy new tools and stuff, they're all great and good, but it, if we look at those at the expense of just doing the basic things, like let's focus on patch management, let's make sure our certificates are up to date, these core fun- functional things, if we focus on those, we're gonna stop 99.9% of the, of the risks that we have out there. On the compliance side, that's the third point, Focus on risk. In security in particular, we, because it's our job, we love to over-index on controls. But controls necessarily reduce the productivity of folks. Like they impede some sort of activity by definition. Um, and so establishing meaningful risk, risk practices um, and governance allows you to be able to position yourself to both defend against the risks while at the same time enabling and supporting the business at large. And then the fourth point, fourth and final point is uh, your customers. Being able to emphasize what they, what they need, what they want, and partnering with them. I think a lot of security organizations view us and, and a lot of folks view us as sort of the, the folks in the boiler room and you know we're going to do our job and no one's going to think about it. But there's a tremendous amount of value that security can add. Not only do we, should we be playing a part in virtually all product development and any sort of techno, technical delivery service aspects, but we can also help our customers by virtue of threat intelligence, providing them best practices and insights, helping them with some of their challenges, whether it's from uh, working on the regulatory stuff like I was talking about earlier, or it's just providing the, the meat and potatoes, hey, here's a particular threat actor and it looks like they might be targeting your industry. Those things are really useful to them. And so I think if you focus on those four key things, you're going to be in pretty good shape. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Now, how did the personal information of tens of thousands of New South Wales motorists end up being exposed online? For more on the story, here's ISMG's Managing Editor of Security and Technology, Jeremy Kirk. How did scans of 54,000 Australian driver's licenses end up exposed on the internet? As it stands now, it's unclear, and it's also unclear if those affected will be notified. The data was left on an Amazon simple storage service bucket. It was found by Bob Dychenko, who runs a website called Security Discovery. He frequently finds data publicly exposed in S3 buckets due to configuration mistakes. 
It's unknown how long the data was exposed, but it also includes toll notices and statutory declarations. Statutory declarations are documents that someone files when they want to contest a toll notice. All of the data is sensitive and could be used for identity theft schemes. Driver's licenses are a key document for identity in Australia and contain birth dates and physical addresses. When verifying a person is who they say they are, many Australian government agencies use a point system. A birth certificate or a passport usually has the highest number of points, while driver's licenses usually rank second highest. Transport for New South Wales, which is the state's transport agency, says it is investigating the exposure along with Cybersecurity New South Wales, which is the state's cybersecurity agency. The New South Wales Information and Privacy Commission says that the government wasn't responsible for the breach, but rather a commercial business was, but it didn't identify the company. I spoke with Troy Hunt, who's a data breach expert who created the Have I Been Pwned data breach notification site. He says the data is sensitive and the exposure needs to be disclosed publicly. And it would likely need to be disclosed by law. Australia requires mandatory notification of some types of data breaches, including ones related to personal data that could result in serious harm. The Office of the Australian Information Commissioner can assess fines for not compliance for not reporting breaches that range up to $2.2 million. So where did the data come from? I called a Sydney-based company that appears in some of it. The company was aware of the exposure, but said it's confident that the storage bucket wasn't one of its own. Conceivably, it's possible that some organization was breached and then the documents were stashed by whomever stole it on an open S3 bucket, which was then found by Daichenko. Unfortunately, that could make it very difficult to find out who originally collected the data. That entity could be unaware that it is also, in fact, a victim of a breach itself. Meanwhile, there are 54,000 New South Wales residents who are affected by a risky data exposure, and they may never know it. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. And finally, privileged access is the portal to an organization's most valuable assets and is at the core of nearly every major security breach today. Thus was the case in the July Twitter hacking incident. I recently spoke with David Boder, Group Head of Information Security at Camelot, which is the operator of the UK National Lottery, who offered his recommendations when it comes to privilege access management and how to thwart breaches involving privilege access credentials. Here he is. So before tackling privileged access in an organization, my own experience would, would suggest that you first need to have a solid, solid foundations with good identity and access management, right? So, so PAM is a subset of that and, and it's also dependent on it. Um, if, you, if you start with PAM, possibly you're not starting in the right place. So to, to bring that to life a bit, if you don't have a good identity lifecycle process in place, then it's going to be difficult to make sure privileged access is revoked for movers and leaves in a timely manner, for example. But once you've got those foundations in place, when you're ready to look at privileged access, it's important to remember there are often more machine-to-machine privileged access accounts in a given environment, such as service accounts or similar, than there is direct human privileged access. And the ways to manage risk of each are potentially different. Focusing in on, on human privileged access, though, there, there are variations here too. You might first look at local administrative access to an end-user device, an administrative access to a server, or, or instances uh, or, or to network devices or to databases or applications and, and there's a number of controls you might use to help manage your risk it's important to highlight here that you don't necessarily need every control at every layer of the technology stack events and depth is clearly a, a good thing but it's also important to remember to be proportionate in where security controls are placed examples of the controls you might use include implementing things like segregation of duties 
Um, so a single individual or team do not have privileged access in multiple places that collectively would allow them to bypass all the different preventative and detective controls in place against a given risk. Um, and that's something I spent a lot of time on trying to get right. Um, you might also implement technical controls using things like automated credential rotation or privileged session screen recording. Another area an organization might look at is who they choose to place their trust in and making use of personnel vetting programs, for example. You also asked about breaches involving privileged credentials, and, and, and I feel the principles here are similar for other credential-based attacks. Clearly, using multi-factor authentication, if possible, is, is a good thing. Using unique and strong passwords, if you have to use knowledge-based authentication at all, um, and, and you can't go passwordless, which, which is, a, is a good direction of travel, if possible. In addition, doing things like trying to isolate privileged access from standard access by doing things like not allowing privileged accounts direct access to the internet, by, by way of example. I guess that's a run through in terms of, yeah, at a high level, the, the kind of pan, pan type considerations that, that I've been thinking about. That's it from ISMG's security report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time. Thank you.